lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Day Show. And greetings. Welcome to a special edition of The Steve Day Show. That would be me. Me amo. Esteban. Como se llama? And that's about all I know. Todd Erzin and Aaron McIntyre are here as well. You, know, you have my permission to speak in English, by the way. Well, that's all you were going to get. Capiche? <laughs> Yiddish? Jive? Hutzpah? El gracias, yes. senor. Indeed. Uh, yo quiero Taco Bell. Huh? Huh? Nada es imposible. Indeed. There you go. 888-900-3393 is the number here uh, to Blaze TV radio and podcast. You can also let us know what you think about what we think, preferably in English, uh, by emailing the program, steve at stevedace.com. That's D-E-A-C-E, or like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. And I mentioned at the top of the show that today is a very special edition of the program. You know, we love talking about the intersection between Pop culture and conservatism. And I'm going to unveil today my sweet 16 all-time favorite movies. These could Some of them are great. Some of them are just faves, but maybe not great on their own. But these, if, if you told me I can only take 16, and how'd I come up with that number? Because the assignment was to, make it 50, was to make it 10, and then I couldn't make it 10. And then the assignment was to make it 15. And I just, I really couldn't get down to 15. I, I had a hard time getting down to 16. This is the second movie list in a row where the prototype Dacian ruthless efficiency is just kind of waffled. Yeah, just thrown out the window. I mean, Aaron almost received a 27 film honorable mention list. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole nother show. Yes. I'm like, I don't know that we can get through that in two hours. All right. So I'm going to explain why each of these films made my list. Let you guys comment on that. And then we're going to look at some of the worldviews attached to them as well, because that's what we do here. We look at the intersection between pop culture and conservatism. Any questions before we get started in terms of the criteria or anything else? I do have one. Okay. How much of this is depend percentage wise is based on your own personal movie category fetishes, i.e., I, no, I'd imagine an Avengers film is going to be on it. I love them too, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think most people, not even because they didn't think they were great, they probably wouldn't think, even if they're not art house snobs, right. they would go, you know, Saving Private Ryan, and, and that may be on there too, something like that. And a superhero movie wouldn't get it. How much of this is weighted by your personal... This is Dace's list versus an everyman inarguable top 16. That's a great question. Um, And I think that's why I'm going with these are my favorite movies ever. Because, for example, Schindler's List is not on this list. That's my point. But objectively, in terms of its achievement in the craftsmanship of filmmaking, if, if I lined it up, just from a rate, the level of skill and precision of the storytelling. And I lined it up with, you know, the majority of these films. Is it going to come out on top? Yes. Yeah, it will. So some of these are films that even if they're not my favorites are considered objectively in and of themselves legitimately great. All right. But 
the greatness wasn't as much of a factor as much as my favoriteness was it. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think I saved you some emails, not all of them. And I think that's an important clarification because, I mean, there's going to be several all-time great movies that I would agree with you are all-time greats that are not yeah. going to be on this list. I mean, in my top 16, I, and I don't know what your list is, I, I don't think my top 16 would include The Godfather. It's undeniably a brilliant movie. I just don't I think, think it would it. be in my top 16. This is where we call a timeout. Uh, Aaron, go grab the switch. That is absolutely a dude code violation. No, it's not. And we will be taking Todd Ooh. over our knee. The Godfather has to be in your top that's 16? A, that's a dude oh code I didn't violation. say it was bad. Oh I said it was great. It just wouldn't be in my... I, See, you're proving Jesus. my point. I just, Maybe I, I didn't save you emails. Well, I think it is I, Dace's list, not I, like the objective, just, <laughs> the greatest list ever. It's my list. Not sure if you, when when we see, I think it's 15 or 14, 15. Not sure you want to be talking and chucking out uh, dude code violations right now. <laughs> oh, oh, let's get this so thing started. So it's going to be like that, is it? Is it going to be like that? I hope like, not. What, like, like, I had a very difficult time leaving the natural off this list. It's absolutely one of my favorite movies. Absolutely. I, I mean, I love the movie. But I didn't know what to take off in order to put it on. So, I mean, if it was the, if this was the She's Only 17 list sponsored by Winger, The Natural would be 17. All right. At some point, even I, with no restraint whatsoever in mind, realized I've got to cut myself off at some point. Otherwise, it just, this whole, this loses its, it's meaning, right? But it cut me deep, Shrek, to leave. Well, Shrek is another one, by the way, the original. But it, it cut me deep, Shrek, to leave the natural off this list because it it's absolutely one of my all-time favorite movies. So if that wasn't, if we did an honorable mention, uh, the natural would be on the list for sure. I think it is. I think it just was. All right, there it is. That's your honorable mention. Thank you. I found a way to squeeze it in. I did. That was not an intent. It was more of a lament that turned into okay. That makes sense. All right. Let's begin with number 16. Raiders of the Lost Ark is my number 16 favorite movie of all time. And everything about this movie is just cool, man. Everything about this movie is cool. Um, the, the swagger of Indiana Jones. And in our generation, we had not seen any movies like this. It's meant to be a throwback to the, a lot of the Saturday morning serials and stuff that George Lucas and Steven Spielberg went and saw at, you know, at the movie theaters when they were kids, just with 1980s technology and cinematography. But we had never seen a movie with, that was you know this kind of pulpy fan-favorite action, but on this grand of a scale as well. And then you throw in the meta narrative where they're seeking after the Ark of the Covenant and you're up against uh, the Nazis <laughs> who are going against, uh, who are looking for, you know, uh, a, a cult or what they consider to be a cult items or items of religious significance that they thought uh, could either uh, reveal power to them. And by the way, they did do this in history. This is a historical fact that Nazis did search for artifacts like this. Like one of the things Hitler was obsessed with is uh, uh, whatever the name of the, the spear that uh, that pierces uh, the, the side of Christ that there's a lot of legend about for centuries. Um, and so they took a page out of that playbook to tell this story. And then 
the soaring score of John Williams. I mean, the movie is just, it's just freaking cool. And one of my all-time favorite movie scenes as a kid, I used to reenact this in my room all the time. And you know what I'm talking about, Todd. The swordsman? Yes, you knew. Yes, absolutely. And that dude just rolls out with all the all this, you know, uh, whirling dervish sword routine, right, to intimidate Indiana Jones and just grabs his gun and takes him down and then walks off. That's, dude. This is, in many respects, Indiana Jones is the is the dirty Harry for the uh, for the for the more idealistic '80s, where Dirty Harry was more of the the more of the cynical nihilistic antihero '70s. Mm-hmm. But but that sort of I I I don't give a care and um, and reckless abandon with a certain '80s uh, suave at the same time. It it's just an all time classic movie, and it and it holds up to this day. Because of the way it's shot and the way that it's filmed, everything holds up to this day. I just watched it again recently. On it was on uh, like one of the uh, Turner Classic uh, Movie Channels, and I was just watched it again the other day, and I'm like, crap! I'm so glad this is on my list. The holdup quality is undeniable. I mean, is there any one of the Indiana Jones, the first three movies, even though they're not all on the same? But it, th- that is a perfect example of if you turn on the TV and are sitting down and you don't know what you're going to watch and that happens to be on, you'll sit there and just watch. Yep. I, it's yep, so I got, fun. If I've got nothing, if it's too scorching hot outside or it's winter de- wintry desolation, I can give this a couple of hours oh, on a Saturday or Sunday. But sadly, in the end, too many parallels to Star Wars. That last one, the fourth one, what what was that? Have you noticed there's a have you noticed this trend with these Indiana Jones films since you brought up the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls? So the first one is considered an all-time classic. The third one is considered an all-time Correct. classic. And these are the and those are the two that in terms of their storytelling, are both biblically-based epics. Right. So in this, in the first one, he goes after the Ark of the Covenant, right, where where right. they put the Ten Commandments, okay? In the, in the third one, he goes after the Holy Grail, the cup that, uh, that Christ was given water to at the cross, or the sour drink at the cross, right? The middle two, now, I think Temple of Doom is way I, better than Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls. Oh, it is. I, I still love but, it. But it's also not as good as the first and the third movie. The middle two... The storytelling kind of, I think, falls flat compared to the other two, um, or the even-numbered ones, and those are both based in pagan occult mystique. Like, the second one is, I think, there's a lot of, like, um, is The it second one, it's in India. Hindu, it's tribal... It's these stones. Yeah. It's the three stones. Yeah, so basically like a pre-Hindu India, the kind story of in te- a way. And the storytelling is so good. The storytelling in the fourth one. And the fourth one is, is about so lazy. The fourth one is basically ancient aliens. Yeah. It's the whole alien Eric it, von Donegan theory that aliens created life on and Earth. And it's it's it, the laziness is implied. Area fifty one, of course. That's an obvious older Indiana Jones one based on the timeline. I mean, it's not like I don't understand why they went there, but mm-hmm. then what they did with it was just And he brutal. survives the atomic blast in with the refrigerator. The refrigerator. Yeah, yeah, and that was yeah. early on in the moon. You're thinking, no, no, mm-hmm. no fallout, apparently, from that atomic blast. It wasn't radioactive at all. You just walk right out of there and go, yeah, we made it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but it does seem that the, the storytelling, the two movies that are biblically-based epics compared to the other two is dramatically superior. Maybe it's just a coincidence. I don't know. Aaron, you have any thoughts before we go to number 15? Uh, so 
this is this is not like a Rudy to me. Uh, I I do want to see this someday, but I have not yet seen this. Chris Pandolfo one time tried to make me watch it. I had to go take care of something in the middle of it, and I came back and saw the end. Had another uh, layer of lacquer on that but, end table you were building there. Yeah, or? yeah, and uh, so I was not able to watch the whole thing. But it's not like Rudy to me. I I deserve chastising for not for not seeing this one yet. You know what? Another part I love about these movies, small thing, but. I love the map scenes when they're traveling and the yep. plane, the yep. line of the plane and the yep. music is on. It's fantastic. I mean, and just how cool is the name Raiders of the Lost Ark, oh, man? That's just, just, I, I wanted, I wanted to be in the development meeting when somebody came up with that title for the movie, because I'd have been like, I need to quit right now. I'm never going to come up with a better movie title the rest of my life than that. So Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark is number 16 on my sweet 16 favorite movies. Of all time, which brings us to number 15. Aaron believes this is a dude code violation, but I have gone with the wind at number 15. This is, I used to watch this once every year. and I just haven't watched it in several years, but I mean, you want to talk, this is the ultimate old school Hollywood epic before CGI when they were using actual extras for everything. Um, and Clark Gable is Rhett Butler, dude, dude, you want to talk about timeless. That guy's nickname should be dude code. Okay. I mean, does it get any freaking cooler than Clark Gable in general? Of course, the controversy surrounding this movie, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. And the whole controversy about having that line in the movie at that time, it, I mean, nowadays you put your kids and they watch the Disney channel and uh, they're told, I don't give a damn. But back then, it was it was a scandal for Clark Gable to utter that line unedited uh, in a movie. Uh, everybody has this film considered one of the 10 greatest movies of all time by any objective list. If you um, if, if you adjust for inflation, it's, I think, one of the five or six highest grossing movies of all time. It's about a period, it, it, and it encapsulates a, a historical period that I've always been very fascinated by which is that, which is the Civil War era. Uh, when I grew up as a kid, I watched the blue and the gray, the North and the South, all that kind of stuff. Read, studied a bunch of that in school and everything else. Um, and the cinematography, it's, it's, it came out the same year as another movie that's going to be on this list here in a little bit. And I wouldn't say that it, it's quite that impressive, but still, when you look at the landscapes and the way this is shot, and you realize that they made this movie almost 75 years ago. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. And I absolutely love the film. Love it. And this is the kind of movie, by the way, on a cold, wintry desolation day or a sultry, hot summer day, you don't want to go outside, and you have three and a half hours to kill, this one is right up your alley. So Gone with the Wind is number 15 on my list. I've seen it once. It was a like long time ago, like before I was married, so more than 20 years ago. It's made almost no impact on me other than the obvious scenes that I can remember, which makes me think I need to go back and watch it uh again. I but this this I will say this this only we're only two in. This is a perfect uh Dacian melding so far indiana i mean most people would be too you could go from one of those to the other one is that what you're saying yes, yes. if this is the quality of the list so far 
I'm in. Now, Aaron, make yeah. your case this is a dude code violation. And not just because one of the lead male characters' name is Ashley, which if, it is. If I made the case that I want to make, I'll get fired on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> like that's ever stopped here's, you before. Well, that's true. Um, uh, here's the thing, though. I, I'll, I'll give you a pass on this. Now, if there was like um, a musical, like a Rodgers and Hammerstein or a West Side Story on your list somewhere, then it would be like burn this list with fire. I agree. Um, I agree. But there's not. So <laughs> Number 13, Moulin Rouge. <laughs> yes. There's no Les Mis. Like Les Mis, I think, is a good movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, but if it was paired with Gone with the Wind in any top 20, any top 16 list, then no. Uh, a Jonah Hill gif. I still think Shakespeare in Love is a better movie than Saving Private Ryan. And, and then, we're done here. And I remember the big controversy that year at the Oscars when it won Best Picture. I saw both movies. I did too. And it's a good movie. It is a good movie. And and Saving Private Ryan's opening 10 minutes is the best picture of the year. The rest of the movie, I don't like. I don't. And you know what I don't like about it is I've really got a, I really, I, to this day, I believe they Vietnamed World War II. We're not doing anything noble here. What's the point of all this? We just want to go home. Nothing's happening here. That's the rest of the, so they, it's, the movie starts off with this, this heroic stand on the, on the beaches of Northern France. Okay. D-Day. And then the rest of the movie is Tom, you know, Hanks is essentially uh, Tom Cruise in uh, born on the 4th of July, you know, just wants out. <laughs> it's dumb, stupid. What are we doing? It pissed me off watching it. I haven't, I have not seen the movie since I saw it in theaters because it made me so mad watching it at the time. That might be one you need to see again. You think That's, so? Yeah. You think I'm misreading it? Okay. That's one I need to see. But war is hell. So, I mean, it wasn't, they weren't all G.I. Joe. I'm not, I, don't, country, I, don't, but, I don't need G.I. Yeah. Joe, but this wasn't Denang in the summer of 70, man. Okay. You know, this, we're not, we're not. We're not we're not uh, practicing military masturbation to LBJ's domino theories. This is freaking existential, you know, end of the world kind of stuff. And everybody knew it, you know, and I really didn't like the, uh, you know, oh, yeah, you know, we're just kind of mailing it in here. What's the point? It doesn't make any sense. I, it really bothered me when I saw the movie hmm. at the time. You've never said that out loud before. Yeah. Perhaps that was best. <laughs> <laughs> Weird flex, bro, but okay. All right. Let's go to number 14. On the list is Avengers Endgame. And we've done so much about this movie in the past couple of years. I, I don't know what, what's left to say. I give you credit for just keeping it at 14. I mean, recency bias and all that, that, that you yeah. didn't put it higher. When I initially did this list, it was not on it, and The Natural was. And then I replaced this with the natural, and then I put it up against uh, a couple the, the the other two movies, and I don't know, you know, I, you want to talk about violations? If I had any like membership to any critic society, and I put Avengers Endgame ahead of Gone with the Wind, I I would be, you know, gender transitioned. Okay, but I can't think of a of a film in in the history of this medium. You know, Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind was a renowned all-time fictional bestseller. There was all kinds of hype for the film adaptation of it at the time, similar to, a, you know, a translating a Harry Potter book for the first time to, to, to film. <clears throat> Pardon me, but I, I cannot think of a movie 
even like Return of the Jedi, in my in in the history of movies, tell me a movie that had higher expectations to scale than this one did, and of all time since we invented motion pictures. Well, that's why I could have seen you putting this totally seriously in your top five and kind of making the same kind of case as the Oscars did for finally giving it to Return of the King <clears throat> mm -hmm. and kind of as a, we're mm -hmm. giving it to all three of you. We couldn't give it, to, we weren't right. about to give it to you all three times. Right. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, I, I would have never believed this was possible. I mean, Return of the Jedi had huge expectations. The first great all, you know, transcendent trilogy, but there weren't 24 hour a day, seven day a week, YouTube channels and fanboy websites just blowing this way out of proportion. We, we, it was three years in between these movies and they'd often, except for you and your buddies talking about them in the schoolyard, they'd often be out of sight, out of mind. Now, you know, this had to incorporate 10 years of movies, what 22 or something films. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the storylines are on the present they're, because they're constantly being updated with new movies. They're constantly, constantly being talked about with social media to scale that Everest. I mean, I, I think from a motion picture standpoint, from an accomplishment standpoint, this, this movie's scaled the Mount Everest of expectations and then jumped down from the top of Mount Everest and landed first and then climbed it again. I, I just, I can't believe they pulled it off. I, I mean, and, and you think of how people thought the fan service in the last Star Wars movie was too over the top and a little at times and, and too obvious. This movie did all that same kind of fan service, but made you think that you were watching Cecil B. DeMille yeah, direct that, the Ten Commandments that's instead. That's a crucial point. Yeah. I, I just, and you know what? I'm glad I brought up the Cecil B. DeMille analogy there because if if they could have made a, a movie like this in his era, it would look like Endgame on that level of scale. Um, and you know what? This just has me in the mood. I haven't watched it in a, in a couple of months. This has me in the mood just to go back and watch it again. It's just absolutely. And even the, the scenes are so well done that you, that you kind of know are coming. Like, you know, there's going to be some emotionally stirring return of those mm -hmm. that were snapped away. You know, it's coming and it's still, and it's still yes, it's still. And, um, I just, man, I got to I got to tip the cap to the Russo brothers and I would urge you all to retire and and enjoy your residuals and just hit the convention circuit for the rest of your lives talking about this cuz you'll never ever be able to top this ever. Ask Peter Jackson. We're going we're going to get to him a little bit later on. It's been almost 2003 is when Return of the King came out. Holy it's been almost cow. 20 years. And he hasn't come close. He hasn't touched the hem of that movie's garment, let alone inhabited the same space. So my my advice to the Russo brothers is, man, enjoy life. That's what I would urge you to do. Yeah, last time I saw it, I, I really realized how... We were talking about how's this going to end. Mm -hmm. You know, who's... Go, which... Is Tony going to die? <clears throat> is Captain America going to die? What's going to... And you watch the end of this... And again, it's just a credit to how deeply, I mean, we pretty deeply immerse ourselves in how we think about this in Star Wars, how deeply they did to be fair to all the source material that when you watch how they ended it, you're left with like, well, that's not just one option among them. That's how it had to how end. How could it have been any better than this? Captain America yep, getting was, to go back yeah. is so, and I never even 
pondered that storyline. It's the only storyline, really. Yep, it is. It is the one in what fourteen million. That's the yeah. that's the storyline that they found. The one in fourteen yeah. million, just like Doctor Strange, yep. thing, you know, found out the one in fourteen million or whatever the number was, uh, possibilities of them actually surviving. So, yeah, I was, I'm younger, so when Steve sent me the email with this at number fourteen. I was like, what the heck, man? So maybe that's, I don't want to pillory your list. Well, I kind of do, but I'm not going to pillory your list because it's your <laughs> list and you put it together, not me. But uh, if I was your I, age, it would be higher on my yeah, list. Yeah, if yeah. I, it would probably be in my top five for all the reasons that you just mentioned, but you've been a, a, around a little yeah, bit Yeah, if, if I was your age, I've like never seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, for example. This would absolutely be a top five movie. You bet. Just like, it, just like you know, we would be in a generation that would have the original Star Wars higher on this list than somebody that was born pre-World War II, you know, and and remembers going to see Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments, you know, in a movie theater, actual. You know, so there's a certain generational bias here, no question about it. All right, number 13 on the list. The Lone Musical, The Wizard of Oz, is on my list at number 13. Come, You want to talk about a monster year for movies. Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz the same year. And there were other movies that came out that year as well that are considered all-timers. As a child, this used to air Wednesday before Thanksgiving or Thursday night of Thanksgiving on CBS every year. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. And I never missed it, ever. Um, absolutely. As a, as a, as a little, as a, as a small child, this was... And another movie that's going to be high-ranking on this list later on, and another movie that's going to be high-ranking on this list later on, were my 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 three favorite movies. I I watched them every time they were on. Uh, I you know, um, if we're going to do the whole hashtag girl dad thing, watching getting I for you know you get older and you're too cool for it now and you're too manly for it now you know, and then you have daughters. When we first moved into the house we're in now. Um, and I could first put together the man cave that I have now and turn it into the little theater room and stuff we have now. And the first movie night, family movie night we had in there, it was Zoe's turn. What do you think we watched? She wanted to watch this, watch this on the big TV in daddy's theater room. And, um, I think we had to put a rule in our home that you couldn't pick a movie when it was your turn more than once a year. Because we went, I, Zoe picked this movie every time for like six months in a row. <laughs> All right. And some of my best memories as a daddy are Anna and Zoe when they were little, watching this with them over and over and over and over again. My wife's a huge fan and uh, we, um, we had a, a 20th wedding anniversary uh, trip uh, to New York City a couple of years ago. And I got our tickets to go see Wicked on, on Broadway. Okay. Um, we just, our, 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 our family loves this film and I've loved it since I was a little kid and still to this day with all, you think of the, the special effects we just, that we saw in the movie we just talked about, Avengers Endgame. And probably not until George Lucas introduced us to the pullback shot, the first frame of Star Wars. When they do the pullback shot of the, of the Star Destroyer chasing after Princess Leia's little tiny ship, and like people were in the theaters, it just blew their mind to see something like that. You could probably say it wasn't until that moment that anything in a movie theater topped from a special effects standpoint. 
So that's 1938 to 1977. That's 40 years. Nothing topped. Dorothy opening the door to Oz and the, and the bright colors shine through compared to kind of the rustic looking black and white that the movie has up until then. Um, I will confess, I absolutely love Judy Garland um, as well. So there's a, there's an aspect of it. I'm a, I have some eclectic taste as you guys are going to learn in this, uh, in this, uh, in this episode. So um, I, I just, I, there's some of these movies on, on this list. I love this movie. I adore. I just adore the movie. I've got a lot of great memories tied to this film, both as a kid and then with my own. That's the crucial part from your point of view. I mean, it's an, an undeniably a classic, a lot of fun. Uh, but, but you, once you watch Steve talk about his childhood as a past ups and downs, you realize how nostalgic you are to your very core and the rhythms of this. I think the fact that this was regularly scheduled programming around yep. the beginning of your, the Christmas and that here's has the thing, everything in my to do. We always had the best Christmases growing up, you know. Um, and so even with even Dave was yeah. like Christmas was I I, I put yeah. my temper under control. So the good times are coming. Yes, yeah. and so I, the I kind of tether it to that as well. You, you bet. should. All right, more of my Sweet Sixteen favorite movies of all time next year on Blaze TV Radio and Podcast. is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, back here on the special edition of the Steve Day Show here on Blaze TV Radio and Podcast. My Sweet 16 favorite movies of all time. Both from a, there's some worldview in here. There's some nostalgia in here as we were just discussing. Uh, and it's going to be a pretty eclectic list. If you're just tuning in, let's recap things so far. All right. Number 16 on my list, although it, it broke my heart, Fredo, not to have the natural on this list is because I, I love the movie. I mean, a couple of my all time favorite movie scenes are in the natural where he breaks the clock at Wrigley field. Yep. I love that scene. And then of course the classic at the end where he shatters the light fixture and, and you want to talk about all time, great musical scores, Randy yep. Newman's uh, theme. Crap. I got to go back and watch that again. Now I'm all, I'm, I'm going to be hyped up to go back and watch all of these movies again. All right. But the natural didn't make it. It would have been 17. If we had done the, she's only 17 list sponsored by winger. The natural would have been at 17, but instead I had to cut it off at 16. So Raiders of the Lost Ark is number 16. I don't think there's any great objections there. No. No. Gone with the Wind is 15. Aaron was uh, threatening a dude code violation. Um, I think this is legit. Okay. Number 14 on the list, Avengers Endgame. And this is where Aaron, I agree, if he was, you know, if, if I was in his generation, this would be much higher up on the list. Much higher. Then number 13 on the list, we just unveiled. It's the last one we talked about, The Wizard of Oz, the an all-time classic, but 
Uh, there's a lot of great family memories for me, both as a kid and with my own kids associated with this film. And it's just been a big part of our family ever since the girls were little. And it's it's been a big part of my life since I was a little kid, too. I, I love the movie. Totally understandable. You don't, given the choice right now, which movie you're going to watch, Avengers or Wizard of Oz? If it's, it's just with me, I'm going to watch Avengers. Yeah. If it's, if, if. The, the girls are, especially now that they're older, if, if they were to come up to me, hey, daddy, like we used to, let's watch Wizard of Oz. I would call in sick. I'd drop everything, whatever I was doing at that time in life, I would do that. That Because that's what, you know, we, I probably watched this movie with our girls. I, I can't tell you how many times, countless. But I think, I think you probably would have put this I think that's the honest answer so I think this probably would have been like number 16 but you knew right out of the gate Steve Dace can't say the first movie he talks about is Wizard of the Oz he needed to get some street credit first make I sure the Avengers even, I are did, out I there. actually didn't even think about that but maybe subconsciously I, yes. I could I could I could see me uh, working that way let's get to number 12 on the list The Shining yeah you love this movie and um it's, I think, the most brilliantly sinister, written, filmed horror film of, of all time, in my view. You have, a, you have an all-time classic performance by Jack Nicholson, that he, where he essentially takes a malevolent force and applies it to his character that won him so much acclaim and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. All right. And, um, I think you see him in this role the way most people see, um, Heath Ledger as the Joker. Yeah. Just- that's a great analogy. That's a, that I never even thought about it before, but that's, that's a great analogy in that he's just what he has to inhabit in order to pull this character off. Now, I mean, he didn't, it didn't cause him to, to sink into a despair and a pit that, uh, Heath Ledger sadly never recovered or, or dug himself out from, but, um, and and the way that he portrays Jack Torrance, where early in the movie he's trying to get a fresh start, but you can kind of see it simmering, and this also probably has something to do with my own childhood too, because my own dad was very much like this. He could be very very cool, but you always wondered, you knew what was simmering under the surface. You knew, and you were never really sure what could trigger that outburst. And if you went to bed at night and you never saw it, it was a cool day and you looked forward to getting up in the morning. But, you know, you could, you guys could be joking around and, uh, you know, father and son busting each other's balls. And if you just took it too far at all, it was just like, you know, uh, zero to 60. And, and the way Nicholson portrays Jack Torrance is in a very, Similar vein. I mean, I even identify with little Danny. I mean, I was the I was that kid riding my big wheel everywhere. I had the, I had the mean green machine. Did you have that as a kid? Yes. I had one of those as a kid. I used to ride that thing absolutely everywhere. We lived in a, all over the apartment complex we lived in at the time. Um, and so I even identified with that. But um, also my grandmother, um, who played a, a big role in raising me when I was little because my mom was only 15 years old. And so with her and my dad, after she got married to Dave, when they would go out at night, Grandma and Myrna would always watch me. And she was huge into Stephen King and horror movies. And, and so, 
you know, I remember watching Salem's Lot, the original, when I was little. And that scene where the vampire, cra- I mean, I was like five and that scene where those vampire crashes through the ceiling. I don't think I, dude, I don't think I slept for a month. <laughs> oh, this is so perfect. The, jo- the movie before this was Wizard of Oz. And now we're at Grandma Myrna yeah. and The Shining. Yes. This is fantastic. We, we went from uh, uh, click your heels three times yes. to there's no place like home to all work and no play makes Jack a dough boy. Wendy, honey, darling, light of my life. I'm not going to kill you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. Right. It's a bit of a leap. Yes. So, yes. I mean, the acting, the acting that you mentioned, I mean, that's. That's a cherry on top of what's a, a masterclass in directing a film, yep. I believe, by Stanley Kubrick as well. I think it's his from, greatest film ever. From yeah, uh, oh, I think there's no there's no doubt about that. From from the music, that's one thing. The music mm, is is mm, exactly mm, exactly mm, superimposed. Mm, yeah, mm, yeah, that, but yeah. not just yes. the music, the quiet. In yeah, this movie, exactly. That's what I like. The about, sound not, design is is fantastic in this in this movie, and then the shot selection as well. I, if you watch that movie closely, uh, the shot selection and how things are framed, it's just amazing from just kind of an art form perspective of filmmaking. Just single shots that you can pull out. I, I the there's that Steven Spielberg made that last player. Last player one or, for or ready, ready player one, and it had the scene yeah. from the blood. It's the best of the scene elevated. of the whole film is when they pay homage but to this movie. Ju- yeah. That's my. This is like three or four years ago. So my youngest is nine, and then I've got a twelve year old. So they're maybe nine and six. But that scene, they're watching it, having fun, and there's King Kong all over. That one scene freaked them out. They have no context for it, right? And there's many scenes like that, and they just get things. The, I mean, the maze. In the snow, the bartender, the, man. Yes, yeah. um, what'll it be, Mister Torrance? Um, it's it's just it's and and the thing too is, it was one of the first films that had Easter eggs and things that people have spent years trying to figure out. What are the when she's running away from him and and what's going on in these various rooms? Like, what's up with the chicken, the bunny costume? Right? I mean, or and and. There have been like, like we do this with all kinds of TV shows and movies now. I mean, J.J. Abram has made a career out of the art of the Easter egg and what do things mean? I mean, one of the reasons my all-time favorite television show is Lost is all of the symbolism and the things in there and what's meaningful and what what's germane to the plot and what's not and 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 the you know, the the little things they flash there of historical significance and what's that stuff mean the shining was one of the very first films to include a lot of those things and even to this day there have been whole documentaries done and you can go find channels on YouTube trying to decipher what what is kubrick because none of that's in the book, by the way. If you read the book, and the book is terrifying. Now, what's what's be, it's it's become more common in recent years. But what a lot of people didn't know for many years is that this was among the most hated adaptations of his books Stephen King ever had. He hated this movie, and he used to call it Stanley Kubrick's The Shining because hmm. he said this I is not, not this is not my it's not my book. It's his interpretation of my book. He's he's well, he's Stephen reconstructed also a jerk. it. Huh? Stephen King's also a well, jerk. Yeah, yeah, that's sold in a hell of a lot of books, yeah. jerk. But true, you're right about that. Now, he's come around on this in recent years, and that's why he wrote Dr. Sleep, 
was written as a way to, as the sequel to The Shining, but as a way to kind of merge these two. In the 90s, he tried to come up with, uh, they did a miniseries in the 90s. And the guy who played the younger brother in that TV show Wings, remember that show, Stephen Weber? Oh, yeah. He plays Jack Torrance. And the miniseries is not that bad, by the way. Rebecca DeMornay plays the Shelley Duvall role as the mom, far hotter. Um, It's not, the miniseries is not that bad. It's just Kubrick's vision is, is frankly superior. And in recent years, King has come has, has become more at peace with this film because of its lasting popularity and because it, it, it's easily the greatest the greatest adaptation of one of his books that's ever been done. Because what was, I mean, how many how many Stephen King movies or books to movies have actually been good? That's Shawshank kind of been the great Shawsh- But I mean, the horror books, because you have Stand by Me as Stephen King too, is it not? Yeah. All right, let's go to number eleven on this list. The other horror film, The Omen, which means this is my way of telling you, I think this is the best horror movie that's ever been made. Um, And it's a movie that scared the living daylights out of me as a kid, even though I didn't really understand at the time a lot of its subject matter. Um, I can still... I wonder if I can still remember the like the haiku, the the mnemonic device that they use, or the the poem they cite about the, when the Jews return to Zion and a comet fills the sky. Born is the son of Satan, and you and I must die. From the eternal sea he rises, putting armies on every shore, pitting man against his brother till man exists no more. I did remember that. Remember what I said about unsettling before? (laughs) I can't believe I just remembered that just right off the top of my head. Four, eight, 15. Yes. 16. I've talked about this before, um, but it's probably been a while, so I'll reset it. A a lot of the modern marketing you see in movies nowadays, the, the, the trailers a year before they come out, the, the stand-up displays, the, um, the the pre merchandise marketing that we that it just happens with every major release. All of that was invented by this movie in the summer of nineteen uh, in the summer of nineteen seventy five. Well, that poster I've never seen that poster before. I mean, that's like that, that makes your skin crawl a little bit. You're like, you talk you talking yes. to me? And so, what happened is in nineteen seventy three, if I had gotten down to a top twenty or top twenty five, this movie would have been on the list too. But in 1973, a film was released that just changed a lot of what we, changed the entire genre of horror and really changed what studios thought. Horror was kind of always thought of as kind of pulpy and, you know, it's a place for, you know, boys and girls to go at a drive through and cuddle up as, you know, to, to make out too. But it wasn't really, you, you know. You take it home with you. Yeah. This wasn't considered to be a place for serious storytelling. All right. And then a little film called The Exorcist changed all of that. And after The Exorcist hit, just like after Star Wars, every studio had to have their own sci-fi epic. Well, after The Exorcist hit, everybody, every studio now had to have their own satanic, demonic franchise. And, I mean, you can go through IMDb, you know, satanic movies from the 70s where the devil... And the, or, or satanic minions are the enemies and they're legions and most of them are terrible. And so Warner Brothers wanted to compete with the, or, or 20th Century Fox wanted to compete with Warner Brothers in this space. And they, they thought um, to do so, they wanted two things. 
a big name brand accomplished actor who had won awards, Academy Awards. And so that they would send the signal that this isn't a cheap knockoff. We're really serious about telling a story here. And Gregory Peck is considered one of the greatest actors and, you know, uh, golden era, golden Hollywood era. He's Atticus Finch, man. Absolutely. Yep. Um, And so they went and got him. And then they, um, they hired a promising young director by the name of Richard Donner, who will have another film on this list later on. Um, the Running Man? Not, no, not that one. Okay. And, the, and, the, and they wanted this young director, Richard Donner, specifically because he viewed himself as a lapsed Catholic agnostic, but he had some knowledge of the source material. But they thought because he's an agnostic, he could also not be so tied down to it that it wouldn't, he could bring it into a modern age, could make it accessible. And the the character that, um, oh, David, um, the photographer in the movie, I can't remember the actor who plays him in the film, because and he's been in like 200 movies. I just can't remember his name. That, that camera character is kind of supposed to be the proxy for Richard Donner. Um, spiritually aware, but not really dogmatically attached and you're, you kind of see him go from completely denying all of this is going on to, you know, now he's a witness to it by the end of the film, the musical score, uh, Avi Satana, uh, by Jerry Goldsmith won the Academy award that year for, for best musical score a lot. See a guy named George Lucas was filming this little movie called star Wars when this movie came out. And he was watching his studio, 20th Century Fox, put all this money into the musical score and how that could change and all this pre-marketing. And that's where he got a lot of his ideas about maybe I'll let you guys have the movie rights. I want the merchandising. And that's why they put so much effort into the musical score with John Williams and things of that nature, because they had seen in his own studio the summer before with The Omen. And all over the country in the summer of 1975, the 20th Century Fox had put in all these theaters, the world ends 666. 76 because the movie came out on June 6th 1976 666 right and um it captured the imagination it was a massive hit i think it's a better movie than the exorcist nothing nothing competes with the final with the ultimate confrontation in in reagan's bedroom in the exorcist nothing does but the rest of that movie is yeah all of this movie is great and it's um it's evil to the core and it's done in a way that you could see being culturally plausible. And the final scene where little, ba- where, where little Damien looks at you in the camera when he's holding the president's hand at his daddy's funeral and kind of smiles at you is, as Avi Satani uh, kicks in, dude, that'll ruin your freaking weekend, that scene. All right, so this is the highest rated horror film on my list at number 11. Thoughts. It, it's amazing because uh, The Exorcist is actually based on an amalgam of real life, of real life cases, uh, yeah. of cases. And, One in particular with a thirteen-year-old boy. I think it was in upstate New York or something, right? And yet to do it to, to pull off of a, a, a sequel of sorts to the. I mean, it's it just in terms of what he wants to convey mm-hmm. on an emotional level and to nail it. It's not my genre, but I mean, I respect what you think about this. I think I, I don't. I know you wouldn't oversell it when it's dabbling with this kind of material. Have you never seen this before? No, I have, but it's you been have? a very okay. long time. Okay, it's all for you, Damien. 
And that scene right there makes you realize, Toto, we ain't, we are not in Kansas anymore. This movie is serious. You're listening to Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network. Lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. Back here with hour number two on a special edition of the Steve Dace Show here live and on demand on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. I am Steve Dace. Aaron McIntyre and Todd Erzin are here as well. We continue on. 888-900-3393 is the number. Steve at stevedace.com. That's how you can email us. D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. We continue on with my Sweet 16 favorite movies of all time. Can you tell I really regret not putting The Natural in this list because I, I've brought it up every single time? It's in the list. It's in the list. It's number 17 of a Sweet 16. Number 16, if you're just tuning in, Raiders of the Lost Ark. No objections there. Number 15, Gone with the Wind, which Aaron thinks is a potential dude code violation. Number 14, Avengers Endgame, which Aaron, because he was born 10 minutes ago, thinks should be higher. True. And if I was born 10 minutes ago, I would put it much higher as well in his defense. Number 13 on the list is The Wizard of Oz, which holds innumerable and incalculable nostalgic uh, affection uh, for me, going back to my own childhood. Number 12, as we take a bit of a genre leap, to The Shining. Just a bit. Holds this place a, in my heart, but not more so than these two horror movies. That's right. Which we'll discuss now. It's about to get a tad darker. <laughs> All right. And from uh, the demons, our inner demons, we get uh, the devil that the demons come from at number 11, which is the other horror movie that's going to be on this list. And this is, as I said last hour, this is my way of telling you, I think this is the greatest horror film of all time, in my opinion. That's why it's the highest rated horror film on my list at number 11. Now to the top 10, we are Hallowed now, Ground. We are. We are at Hallowed Ground. Remove your shoes, please. And let's go to number 10 on the list. The Passion. Now you want to talk about another genre leap. And I did not intend for to go from The Omen to The Passion. I, I, I wouldn't be that on the nose contrived, okay? I literally uh, try to just line these films up with one another. How high are they actually on the list? I remember the first time I saw this movie, you know, of course I'd read all kinds of things about it and the controversy leading up to its release on, I think it was on Ash Wednesday in 2004, right? I think it's when the movie was released. And, um, uh, I mean, the, um, ADF, um, the Anti-Defamation League came after it as anti-Semitic and there was a lot of controversy about this film. And when this film came out, uh, I was a baby Christian. Uh, newly converted and a local theater owner here in Des Moines invited me and Mike Woody to come see it. I think on a, on a Wednesday morning, a couple of days before it was going to release on a Friday, he had just gotten the reels shipped in and we got a chance to see it. And he let me invite a couple of local pastors I knew to come with, come with us. And so we're in this giant theater and there's six of us in like the whole theater watching this screening at like 10 o'clock in the morning. And all you could hear during some of the quieter moments 
was, was grown men sobbing watching this. That was me. And um, the movie is, I, I'm trying to remember what was the exact line Pope John Paul II said about it when Mel Gibson screened it to him at the Vatican, because he had to go underground to market this film. Uh, the mainstream, even though he was arguably the number one star in the world at the time, uh, the mainstream didn't want to have any part with the film. And so he worked a lot within um, evangelical circles around the United States and a lot of Catholic circles around the world. You know, there was a line when he took it and showed it to, to Pope John Paul at the Vatican. I think it was like, it, it is, is as it was. It was. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what it was. It is, or it was, or it is think, as it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And... Um, the, the level of authenticity that they went to in this film, including the cast having to learn a dead language, Aramaic. Uh, the look of it, um, you know, we've lamented on this show several times over the years. We have the best stories to tell. Our side does. If we could just get, you know, our people with our with with the talent to tell those stories with the craftsmanship and the power of 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 film we we can we can be tremendously impactful i mean we can we can be cinematography versions of what tolkien and 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 lewis were in another era this film is an example of that uh it's an absolute absolute masterpiece a couple of my all-time favorite scenes are in this film. I know. When the when the androgynous Satan is tempting Jesus in Gethsemane, when he is sweating blood about finishing his ministry, going to the cross, and what that will entail. And and the androgynous Satan is saying, they're not worth it. They'll hate you. They'll reject you. Don't do it. And the whole time, he just ignores Christ just ignores the devil. And then finally, when he says, Abba, which is father in that language, not your will, not my will, but your will be done. And he accepts the final stage of his commission. And he stands up and Jim Caviezel's Christ looks over finally and acknowledges the devil, who by now has his pet serpent has been kind of, you know, lurking and slithering around Jesus while he's praying for the strength to fulfill his calling. And he finally looks over him, man, with a stare that would just make, a, a, would just make demons say, throw me into that herd of pigs, please, because that's preferable to this. And he takes his sandal in fulfillment of Genesis and crushes his head with his heel. And dude, I remember I saw that in the theater when I saw it in the theater for the first time, I freaking set up in my chair like this, you know, like, where's the war at? Let's go. Let's do this. And then the scene at the end on the cross where the teardrop the falls tear. from heaven and it looks like the first raindrop. Wow. I mean, wow. And it hits the ground and all hell breaks oh, loose. Oh, yeah. And it, it splits the ground open. Yeah. Um, the other one I know we share is uh, the uh, the Via De La Rosa. And look, oh, look, that forgot about look, that mother, one. Yeah, I, come yeah. to I make, make all, all things, things new. new. I mean, yeah. my my mom happened to die two years before this came out, and the the combination of that yeah. and the the motherly moment there, it just broke me. It absolutely broke me. Yeah, it's it's incredible. Um, and um, it's why it's in the top ten of my list. 
And I had hoped it was going to spur when, I mean, this is still, I think the most successful independent movie release of all time. When you adjust it for inflation, this is a, this is a multi, this is more than a billion dollar movie. And I think Gibson made it himself for about 30 million with, with his own money and, and the money he raised. So, I mean, he has more than recouped his costs with this film. And I, I had hoped that it was going to spur the studios to say, Hey, at the very least we can make a buck here. And what we got instead was let's make Noah's Ark with Noah, a paranoid schizophrenic and, and really Russell Crowe is doing his take on Jack. Essentially, if you want to know what, what the Russell, what the Noah's Ark movie is, it's the shining and Noah is Jack Torrance. That, that's really what it is. It's the same movie, just a, a much poopier version of it, but that's what they reduced Noah to. They then did, uh, they tried to remake the 10 commandments and, you know, Christian Bale plays a paranoid schizophrenic, Moses, who's not sure if he's really being talked to by God, who's an eight-year-old bratty Egyptian kid, that and nobody went and saw these movies because they chose to tell their versions of these biblical stories instead of the stories. They didn't want what the Pope said, uh, what Pope John Paul said about the movie. They didn't want it is as it was. They wanted it is as we want it to be. Yeah, they and wanted the, not for you. Yes, and the audience has said, you're right, it's not for us, so we're not going. And they just kind of stopped, you know, the major studios stopped making these big budget uh, biblical epics. And it's their own fault. They caused them to fail. Mel Gibson gave you the roadmap. They chose not to follow it. There's one more thing. Everybody has got to know their own children, what they can and cannot take. But I strongly advise having your kids view this movie sooner rather than than later like my two oldest daughters when they got to be i th- i think it was when they were both 11 but i could see that how th- their level of coming into the world and good versus evil sin they I, there were moments i don't even remember what they were where it was time okay they were we're going to plan you're going to have some time to experience to prepare for it but then we're going to i'm going to sit down and watch this movie with you you need to understand the weight of sin. It's not a theory. How it yeah. gets yep. inside and crawls inside your every bone. Now, my third daughter, who's right now 12, she's still violence of a very, very specific, non-cartoonish, but she can't, I mean, she would never last for the first 10 minutes of this, because those two, mm-hmm. I knew they could handle it. I knew it would be tough, but I knew they could handle it. You, your kids, don't, don't withhold this from them. Don't, because yeah. this... It needs to be felt by them before it's too late, and you can't help them anymore. Yeah, it it takes it off of the the Sunday school flannel graph. Right. Yeah. And oh puts yeah. Literally flesh and blood on it, which uh-huh. is which is the way it should be. Mm-hmm. And I remember my 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 repeated reaction, I, and it was just just this kind of shock. It it was the kind of the same reaction. When I watched Unplanned for um, yeah in in theaters yep. which is oh uh, and mine was like oh that's they did that to my savior you know just over and over and over again and it should evoke if you're a believer it should evoke an emotional response uh, from you as well and so as Todd said no you know no who who can who can take it and who can't but it is you've you you have to watch this you have to watch this movie it takes it out of the ethereal and theoretical and puts literally flesh and blood on it 
Uh, one last thing on this film. A few years ago, I was at uh, a Council for National Policy meeting, and uh, you, th that's one of those places what's said there is supposed to stay there. But one of the producers of this film was one of the presenters uh, at the, the dinner that night, and there was only about two, 300 of us in there. So, I mean, it was a pretty intimate setting. And um, one of the things he did share with us is the amount of prayer it took to finish this movie. Because there's almost, you know, you guys have probably heard um, uh, what happened on the set of The Exorcist and to the members of the cast years later, right? They went through a lot of this on the set of this movie. Um, and it was, a, it was a minor miracle that this movie even got finished because everything you could have possibly imagined would, that would be, um, uh, you know, put up as an obstacle to getting this movie done pretty much occurred. So... It was it was incredible to listen to him regale us with the challenge it was to even make this movie in the first place. Next up on the list at number nine is The Dark Knight. And I have contended for years that if this exact same plot line was about any other character other than a guy in a cape and a cowl, it's hands down going to win Best Picture. Not even close. Like this is like a this is like a gritty Al Pacino movie. This is like Serpico or something. That kind of a film. All right. It just happens to be about a guy who's not, you know, a gritty New York City cop fighting the mob. It just happens to be about a guy wearing a cape and a cowl fighting a, you know, a a guy doing a Satan impersonation in clown makeup. But um you're gonna be hard pressed. Avengers Endgame is the greater is the greater cinematic achievement from a comic book movie standpoint. And I don't know that in our lifetimes we'll see anything that'll topple that because I don't know how they can come up with something that has more expectations than that movie had, as we've already discussed, right? Mm -hmm. But in terms of just pure filmmaking, like how good can you make a movie about a comic book superhero? How good could that movie be? Without magic. Yes, this is it right here. I mean, this is... This is a this is a Scorsese film. It's just about a guy who dresses up as a bat. I mean, the subtext, the 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 cultural commentary, and Amy and I went and saw this opening night at the IMAX here. Um, and this was the first one of the first movies they ever showed at the IMAX, major releases. And this is the first movie ever that had whole scenes filmed in IMAX, meaning they were shot with IMAX cameras which is very expensive. That's why a lot of your IMAX movies are 20, 30 minutes because it's one of the most expensive ways to shoot a film. That first, and we're sitting right under the dome and I can still remember the first scene where Heath Ledger pulls off the mask. He's wearing the clown mask and mm -hmm. he's one of the bank robbers. He goes, what only kills you only makes you and he tears off the mask and that's where the IMAX scene takes over and engulfs the whole screen stranger and he's right in your freaking grill man all right and um what this movie had to say about uh security and liberty with the the monitoring the surveillance system um it's got so many quotable lines it's um it's a magnum opus man it's a magnum opus it doesn't age it never gets old and it's an all-time classic performance by Heath Ledger. Yeah, he that when he 
does that scene where he's he's captured and he's but he's talking to the 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 guy who's in the holding cell with him about how you really find out who somebody is when they die. Mm-hmm. And he's the guy who killed him. He said, so in many ways, I know your friend better than you do. You right. know what? Right. That was just amazing. And then the other, that's where you're learning about how he can manipulate people. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I, for me, that scene where he is um, staring down Batman on the, the bat pod and he's coming right at me and Heath Ledger's like, come on, I want you to do it. I want you to do it. Mm-hmm. That, that, to me was also brilliant. It seems like it's not much. Maybe that's just craziness, but I think that that is connected to um, Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker. Like, I don't believe in anything. You know, Mm -hmm. that's, that's just a guy uh, who's in pain. There's, he's not, there's not some grand fight he's fighting. Do I look like a man with a plan? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just an agent of chaos. I know. Yes. I think an underrated part looking back uh, at, at this movie and, and the whole fr- uh, Batman, the, the Nolan Batman trilogy, uh, that I think is underappreciated in light of how ubiquitous Marvel became uh, shortly after kind of these this trilogy mm-hmm. came out, mm-hmm. is just how, hear me out here, I'm not saying that I think this is real. I'm just saying as far as a superhero movie goes, this is actually pretty realistic. You know, there's not magic. Uh, there's not tons of magic that's happening and just weird superpowers. It's actually somewhat believable, somewhat down to earth. And that's incredibly hard to tell a good story, a good superhero story without just ridiculous superpowers as well. And that's, uh, I think they did that effectively. And there's a lot of people who are ticked that this was not a superhero film in that sense that there was just a crime drama essentially Mm -hmm. but it was incredibly well done and i think it's underappreciated in light of marvel's uh we're gonna think of every single superpower we can every single mythical superpower we can and put it in the movie enjoyable in its own right but i think this one gets uh uh overlooked for that i think it's one of the best scripts that's ever been made in terms of the quality of the writing between christopher nolan and his brother who write the scripts to all of his movies um I mean, even little lines at the beginning of the movie where, you know, guys are like trying to take up their own mantle of the Batman, but yeah. they're getting their asses kicked yeah. or killed. And he's like, we're just trying to be like you. What's hey, what's what's different between you and me? And Chris, <laughs> and he looks at him and says, I'm not I'm wearing, wearing hockey, hockey pants. Yeah. All right. Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. The opening, the opening five minutes where they're like going that. back and forth. And about, have you knew who this guy creepy, is? Have you heard about this yeah. guy? With the okay. creepy violin. Just yes. Single yes. Note. In the background. Hey, and, he, and the pencil trick? Yes. Is, 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 oh, is, well, we talk about aggressive expansion. expansion. He breaks yeah. the cue. And I mean, the the level of writing here is, I think it's one of the best written scripts in terms of the dialogue. It's one of the best written scripts of any movie I have ever seen. And I've, now I'm beginning to think I should have had it higher than number nine. Good. But it understands uh, the human condition. It yes. It really does on every level. That's Nolan gets that. Yeah. And that's what's made him such and a great filmmaker. W- one yes. more quick, 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 quick thing at the end of this. It confronts what we confront on a daily basis when we're not doing a show about movies. It confronts what we confront on a daily basis about false choices yes. at the very end. And that's oh, the why ferry boats yeah. at the end. Yeah. yeah. And you know, Gary DeMar, who's a really well-known, reformed theology the guy, uh, wrote a great essay about this movie when it came out 12, uh, how many years ago now? And he basically said Heath Ledger is playing the devil, you know, looking for chaos, pitting people against each other, wanting to prove there's nothing worth 
trying to redeem human beings or that nothing, there's nothing about them that could be made more noble, even if you tried. If they were inspired to nobility, they wouldn't want to do it. And that's essentially right on. I thought that was a brilliant characterization of the role that Ledger played. Let's go next to number eight on the list, which is the Godfather. Everything I have learned in life that I apply to this day. I learned from one of the few, one of the following places, the Bible, church history, and, and, and the Godfather. I have deployed, can I let you in a, a little secret? A lot of the inspiration for the Ten Commandments of political warfare comes from the Godfather movies. Um, both what you watch the Corleone family do right and what you watch do wrong. And I wanted to cheat so bad because there's a cut of Godfathers 1 and 2 where they're put together. It's called the Godfather Epic that Coppola made a separate cut of the films so they're in chronological order. And so this one starts out with the young, like in Godfather 2, the young Robert De Niro as the young you know, Don Corleone. Right. And, it, and it shows the handoff to Michael as the Godfather. I didn't do that. And I didn't do it with the movie that's going to be very highly ranked later on the show because I thought they'd be cheating, like taking a greatest hits album instead of like original. All right. And I know a lot of people think the Godfather part two is the more superior film. And I think there's merit to that argument, but um, the amount of street wisdom in this film. Um, and it's uh, one, it's incredibly acted. Marlon Brando with one of his all-time performances. Um, and you look at the cast, man. Robert Duvall, um, um, Diane Keaton, um, um, oh, the dad in Elf, who am I thinking yeah, of? Kane. Um, what's that? Kane. That's the last name, isn't it? Kane? Yeah. I, I can't remember his name now. Dad. Who plays Sonny? Who's plays Sonny? The- oh, man. Dad Michael Kahn. Michael no, Kahn. James Kahn. James Kahn. Thank you. James Kahn. Yeah. We're getting old, guys. Yes, you and I are getting James old. It's getting Kahn. harder to recall these names. Okay. Al Pacino. Um, did you say Diane Keaton? I did, did say Diane Keaton in there. Yeah. Uh, Rocky Balboa's wife, uh, Talia Shire. Talia Shire. I forgot about her. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's an all-timer. The score, the violin. The, the, yep, yeah. yep. It's an absolute all-timer. And um, I'm having a hard time talking about it because it just... I didn't know you loved this as much. I'm, I had I'm, no idea. Really? You you rarely have spoken of this like you have other movies. Hmm. Have you heard me talk about this movie a lot? Which is why I... Thought, I, I think so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's why I trust... I thought I was treading carefully when I picked The Godfather. When you, when you dunked on The Godfather I earlier? Like, well, I, okay. I, just one that I wouldn't put in my... T- so clearly, no. I think you bring it up fairly often on the show, don't you? Oh, yeah. When I talk about wartime conciliaries yeah. and, and yeah. all those well, yeah, sorts of that's things. that's common parlance. I just yep. didn't know it was this intimate. I've you. used yeah. the uh, the Salazzo analogy of, hey, you know, there's a certain honor code among thieves here. We're willing to provide, you know, hookers and booze for the cops and the elite classes. But you want us to sell smack on the streets. That stuff destroys families and neighborhoods. We're not doing that, right? I've used a lot. You've Over the years, I've actually used a lot of analogies from this film. You know, I just thought of something, uh, a, a kind of a larger big picture view at this episode of the Steve Day Show. For a lot of listeners 
who are what the in the Sam Hill analogy is he trying to draw here? I think this episode is actually helping quite this a bit. This is the similarian. Yes. The similarian the of Steve, Steve Day similarian. You're, you're learning yeah. where the, the origins of a lot of phrases and and perspectives that I have utilized, you're getting them, you're getting the mapping of my brain, is what you're getting. Okay. Because a lot of these these films, one of the reasons they're my favorites is they were hugely influential uh, in my thinking at a particular or helped to crystallize it at a particular point in time. And and other than other than the the scriptures, nothing has nothing has influenced my worldview more than this one has. Not because I think it's noble, but because it's not, and because of the arena I work in is not. And in the arena I work in, there's far more people like the characters in this story than they are like the characters in the book of Acts, if you know what I'm saying. So um, how do you beat those kinds of people? Where are they coming from? What might they do next? When, you're, when your whole life is basically a materialistic crusade for, for significance, recognition, power, and, and virtue and nobility is found on those who are aligned with you in that quest. This is the story is um, is is like a Rosetta Stone for that belief system, and a lot of that is what populates the arena that I've worked in professionally for more than a decade now. Number seven, Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. Man, nothing. Uh, I'm not. Shocked in the least. I knew this was going to be in here somewhere. It's just it has to be. Of... This this movie has to be in here. I think it's. I think it's the greatest science fiction film that George Lucas didn't make. It saved the Star Trek franchise when it was about to die because of what happened with Star Trek the motion picture. And I love how they reinvented it too. They basically just abandoned Gene Roddenberry's hippy dippy, chariots of the gods uh, utopian vision, and went like Reagan era badass. Even switched the uniforms to like this red, sweet looking red uniform that made it look like they were actual, you know, warriors and not uh, members of a rainbow crusade like the original Star Trek uh, jerseys. Um, Ricardo Montalban's performance. It's, it's like the greatest cheesy villain performance ever, man. It's so cheesy. It's so pulpy. It's classic. It's, it's, it's. It's like the, I, I remember to your point, I wasn't a Trekkie, mm-hmm. so I didn't see this right away. And what what year again? Nineteen eighty two. I did. Yep. So, and then it's out for a while, and I'm like Ricardo Montalban, a fantasy, fantasy island, island dude? Are you yes. kidding me? Yep. And then I watched it. And to your point, I'm like, I'll be damned. It's perfect. It saved the franchise because this is also a sequel to a popular episode of the TV show. So we'd never seen anything like this before either. I mean, the, the episode of this TV show aired like 20 years, almost like 15 years before this movie came out. Um, and it, it sparked a bunch of people to go back and watch all the old reruns all over again. It it saved the Star Trek franchise. It's the, a couple of trivia things about this movie. It's the first time CGI was ever used in a movie is this movie. So you can you can win a bet on that in the future. Um, when they when they the the clip where they show what the Genesis device could do is CGI. That's the first CGI ever in an American motion picture hmm. film. It was originally supposed to be called The Vengeance of Khan. But then uh, Lucas was announcing that the next Star Wars movie was going to be called Revenge of the Jedi. 
So like, well, we can't go Vengeance of Khan and Revenge of the Jedi. So they changed it to The Wrath of Khan, which is, a, I think, a far better title. And then Lucas decided in the end, well, like, I, the Jedis wouldn't seek revenge. We'll change it to Return. So neither movie ended up using revenge in their titles. All right. Um, and apparently nobody knows what Jedis are supposed to be at this point anyway. So that was a moot <laughs> there point. There it is. There it I is. Have, thank you. That's my contribution. Take a to drink. The- Ron Paul just said something about the Federal Reserve, and Todd just brought up Star Wars script writing is lost. All right. Nicholas Meyer is the director of this film. Um, he is a University of Iowa graduate, as a matter of fact. And uh, it was supposed to be, this also was one of the first films that had a fanboy leak before we had websites that Spock was going to die. And so what they had to do was then have, they made the scene where Spock dies at the beginning of the film when they're doing the Starfleet simulator. Because people go in there, because go in there, Spock dies right away, but then they see that the whole thing was a simulation, and they're like, oh, it's okay. Because then when he dies at the end of the movie, it still hits you like a ton of bricks, okay? And it was supposed to be the end for Leonard Nimoy. He was done. But this movie was so well done and so well received, he agreed to come back, all right, and continue after the movie came out. And I, I mean, I used to be able to still recite the dialogue back and forth between Kirk and Spock there. In the, uh, in the engine room when he dies of radiation poisoning, ship out of danger. Mm-hmm. I have been and always shall be your friend. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Phenomenal scene. I love this movie. It's, it's Kirk at his absolute best. That scene where they fake out Khan with the, with the backdoor hack on the bridge of the Enterprise to put his shields down. Ah, oh, dude, I like this movie a lot. A lot. That's why it's number seven on my Sweet 16 list. When we come back, my six favorite movies of all time as we continue to take a stroll down memory lane. What do you guys think is number one? Oh, you're going to have to give me a second on that. I okay. put this uh, together in graphic form. So well, Empi- Empire Strikes yeah. Back is as likely as anything. You think that's number one? We're going to find out here in a minute. The truth, straight, no chaser. Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network. All right, we're down to the Super Six. You guys ready to go? Yeah. The yeah. final six of my Sweet 16 favorite movies of all time, and I'm still torn up about The Natural not being in there. But number six is Gladiator. Perhaps the greatest dude code movie of all time. If there wasn't a dude code prior to 2000 when this movie was released, the proper and really only righteous response to this film would have then been to walk right out of the theater, get together with your buddies in homage to what you had just witnessed and create the dude code presented by Russell Crowe. This is uh, a cure for erectile dysfunction. Uh, This is uh, a cure for um, wussification. Um, it's, it's like a better made Rocky, but even cooler. And 
it's uh, what we do in life echoes in eternity. The scene where he confronts Joaquin Phoenix's Commodus in the arena, father to a father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Dude, I literally just had a couple of hairs on the back of my neck stand up. And I'm, I've been waiting to see, is it time yet? Because it's rated R, but it's rated R for the violence that goes on in the arena. And man, when, when the animals and the are, are tearing people apart and he looks up at the crowd, are you not entertained? All-time dude film, all-time. Number five on the list, Star Wars. I don't, do I even need an explanation? I mean, this, this... This this changed everything. I mean, it changed changer. everything. Yeah. Changed everything. It changed everything in American pop culture, not just movies. Okay, I mean, this this is a, it's an all time. It's an all time force of nature. I don't I don't I don't know what we could say in this segment that we haven't already said. Yep. Can you think of something we haven't said, Aaron? That could be said about this. Not really. No, not really. I mean, it's just the amount of. The, the amount of risk-taking that was just right on the money from George Lucas in this film, and you said this, I think, last hour uh, about, um, about the Omen, during the Omen, I believe, mm-hmm. pumping all of this money into the score. But that's always something that I come back to with this, because the score, the soundtrack from John Williams, that was new for sci-fi. The, the classical score yep. that was new for science fiction and that great that gave it an, an amount of gravitas that gave it an amount of gravitas that a lot of sci-fi hadn't had to that point and then the laser swords it was like it was like um you know a a, a, a medieval knight in shining armor thing but with with laser sword i mean that it was that type of thing as well so it was just a lot of groundbreaking really fresh things but with uh, just just the right amount of science fiction and the ra- right amount of just hearkening back to uh, the days of old with uh, you know with with a lot of the themes and a lot of the the tropes in these movies. So, number four on my sweet sixteen favorite movies of all time is "It's a Wonderful Life," and um, I don't know what to tell you. If you don't like this movie, man, you're un- you're Nosferatu. You're undead. Okay, you may not like it as much as me, but if you don't like this movie at all, I, you're just a whitewashed tomb. I, I, I mean, this is—it's the ultimate human experience. Is this entire film, and it tackles existential questions: What's the meaning and purpose of life? Why are we here? Whom are we here for? Um. Uh, the the amount of charm, and meaning. There's so many quotable lines in this film. Every year, I I started doing this a few years ago when the show started to grow. And when we watch this for family movie night at Christmas every year, I will live tweet it. And I'm always amazed at how many people or who among those people, there's been some really, and a really eclectic group of people that I have found that pick up on uh, my live tweeting of this movie and how much I love it. And... Um, The thing that I think the movie does the best is it preaches without being preachy. It preaches in a way that is convicting and uplifting without being condemning. 
And a lot of times in our culture today, we use that description to justify not saying anything serious or provocative that might offend you. This movie does that. It it goes there. But um, it does it in a way that breaks your heart rather than crushes you. And um, Frank Capra, you want to talk about magnum opuses. You, you, you can't make... You can't make a movie better than this. I mean, you just you just can't. You can't make a movie better than this. Thoughts? Yeah, I I put it off watching this for a long time. The first time I saw it was within the last five years, other than and other than you know clips here and there, and mostly because I thought I I, I a I hadn't heard you talk about it like that, uh, so it got me thinking about. It. But I thought the title it just sounded trite. I'm sure it was going to be a nice movie. Mm-hmm. It's not trite. There's weight to it that I just did not expect. Yes, there, weight is a good word. There's a lot of weight to the movie. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's the perfect perfect watch for the holiday season as well, which is why it's on around there. It's set in the holidays, uh, you know, they're around Christmas time as well, and that's. I think that I think that is. I think that's why it's so impactful around that time because you're already feeling n- nostalgic, uh, but you're also. You also need to be reminded, just reinforced during that time when you're already feeling nostalgic and you like, and you know, maybe there's there's family around as you head into the new year uh, as well. Um, you need to be reminded about the the themes in that that TV show or that, that TV show that movie as well. Um, and so it's it's always a great, always always a must watch around, especially New Year. That's usually when I try to watch it. Uh, but yeah, can't couldn't agree more. Number three. There it is. You knew it was coming. Okay. And that tagline right there. You will believe a man can fly. And if you want to know, in my opinion, so just like I said with the omen earlier, that means I'm telling you this is the greatest comic book movie that's ever been made. And here's the reason why. The Dark Knight is a better piece of of standalone filmmaking. The Avengers Endgame is a more spectacular piece of filmmaking. But I'm telling you right now, it's like arguments about who's the greatest president ever. I can answer the question for you. It's George Washington. Because what would happen if he had sucked? We would no longer be having a debate about who is the greatest president ever. Know what I'm saying, G? Sure. Similarly, if this one had failed, I don't, I don't know that you'd have all the superhero movies you've had for the last 30 years. You know, so um, Richard Donner, tasked by Warner Brothers, uh, or by, or, or tw- taken away from 20th Century Fox by Warner Brothers, after watching what he did with uh, the Omen, is then sa- is then asked, "Hey, uh, you brought us the Antichrist. Could you could you make us a secular Messiah? Could you could you do that? Could you could you make these special effects in a post you know Star Wars world? Could you make them believable?" Uh, Gene Hackman is brilliant. Um, the first That's an great superhero villainous performance is Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor. Ned Beatty as his uh, uh, dim-witted sidekick is even phenomenal in the movie. Um, there's real chemistry between Margot Kidder and Christopher Reeve, which you don't get, uh, unfortunately, in the more modern takes between um, um, yeah. James... Uh, Amy Adams. Amy right? Adams. And I love Amy Adams, by the way. I love her. I just she just doesn't have any she's not she's she's not Lois Lane to me. 
But um, I can, I, I mean, I've talked about this many times, but I, one of the most searing memories of my childhood is sitting at uh, the River Hills Theater in Des Moines, Iowa, downtown, waiting to go see this Christmas 1978, I think it was. And uh, the movie starts and it's in black and white and they're reading from Action Comics, number one, the little girl's reading the story. And then, doom, doom. The music kicks in. And like the the um, uh, the cast list, you know, the credits start coming up. And then when the when the S insignia blazons up on the screen with the theme, wow. And this was one of the first contemporary event films that made it immediately onto cable after its theater run. Like you had to wait years for like Star Wars to be on HBO, okay? This went to HBO right after its theater run. And, and so every time this movie was on, man, like I'd look in the TV guide. If it was on like at 5 a.m., I'd set my little alarm, man, and get up at 4.30 to watch this movie. I, 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 I stopped counting at, at 248 times. That's how many times I've saw. I, and I know I've seen it more than that. I just stopped counting. This was my masculine model hero growing up. Um, I used to go around the neighborhood with a with a, a red towel tucked into the back of my shirt, pretending to be Superman. Um, I st- when 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 they when they uh, made the Lego games, no one I would play the Lego superhero DC superhero games, and when you play in the open world mode as Superman and start flying around, the 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 John Williams score kicks in. No, oh, really? And so you can like fly around Metropolis and stuff like that. I would just, cause when Noah and I would play together in this, cause you're playing two players so the screen would split in half. He'd be like out, like playing the game. I would just sit there, dude, for hours. Just playing with the Superman theme, <laughs> flying around little Lego Superman, <laughs> flying around Metropolis, just to, just to hear that theme. So if, if, if I was, if there were like five songs, if you, I was going to be stranded on a deserted island and I can only have five pieces of music with me, this theme would be one of them. All right. So this is the number three movie on my list. I think we just need to, these are special now for you. You got to let these stand alone. I'm not going to get in the way of anything. I don't know. One of them, I just these, we only have two left. I think I got one of them, but I can't I'm think I'm surprised about- you don't know what both of them are, actually. I think you're going to know sure what both I'll get of them it. are. Okay. Any thoughts on number three, Aaron, before we go to t- the top two? I have not seen this one either. I think I at least want to watch the opening scene because you've described that moment so many times. And I love music, especially film scores. I think I just need to watch the opening. Marlon Brando is in this one as well yeah, as Jorel. The early scenes where they go to Krypton. I mean, the special effects in those scenes still hold up to this day and age. When he's when he when he goes back to the Fortress of Solitude to find out who he is, and that scene where Jorel from you know from the from his death in the crystals takes him through the history of his people and how he got to earth. Uh, and it comes back and jor like this, you know, face ice sculpture. I mean, I, dude, I love this movie. I, it's amazing. That, I do. Now that you, there, that's all there. I remember seeing that and there, it seemed kind of, well, it's supposed to otherworldly. Yep. I love very, pretty quickly though. The scene I remember vividly from the beginning is when uh, little boy Clark picks up the car and is lifting yes. it over his head, and then yep. like, oh, this now it comes home. It yep. now I can relate to it. 
And a lot of that dialogue, by the way, between Jorel and Kal-El in the Fortress of Solitude, the son becomes the father, the father, a lot of that, when they wrote the script, they just lifted that right out of the Gospel of John. A lot of that dialogue. <laughs> Number two on the list is The Empire Strikes Back. Um, it's as, it's, as, it's as good as you can make a science fiction film. It is, um, it's, it's a gone with the wind, uh, epic star Wars changed everything. This movie, it took me several years because as a kid, I remember being disappointed by it. The bad guys won at the end. Luke didn't become a hero with the Jedi. I couldn't like, it can't possibly be true that Darth Vader is the, the balls, man, that it took. For Lucas to come back from a, the ultimate hit like Star Wars and then self-finance this movie. He self-financed this out of his own pocket. To self-finance The Empire Strikes Back and just flip, you know, all your do-gooder, happy-go-lucky, we left the theater happy story tropes on its ear to get into like real, adult, like adult-level weighted storytelling. Luke, you know, the 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 father, the son, the, the sin, the sons of the father visited upon the son. I mean, another. It's again. We've talked about these Star Wars movies so much. I don't know what else I can say about it other than that. Let's go to number one because I can't think of what it is off the top of my head. I'm shocked you don't know what number one is. I'm well. I guess I will when I see it, but I can't think of it. Here is number one. Oh well, okay. Return of the King. We were talking about it. It felt yep. like we had already been there. Yeah. Return of the King is the number one movie on my list. And this whole trilogy, I think, I, I think it's the best trilogy that's ever been made. I don't know that a better trilogy will ever be made, at least as long as I'm alive. But the other two films are great. This one is transcendent. This one has like four moments. You're like, wow, this would be a great ending. And then it keeps going. And then there's you know, like, wow, this would be a great ending. And then it keeps going. Um, it's um, it, this film, all of the other elements of all the other 15 films we've talked about in this show that I adore and love, this film has a touch of every last one of them in it. It has heart. It has courage. Um, it has everything. Absolutely everything. And that's why, because it has everything, that's why it's number one. I still remember being skeptical about this coming out like I was about Avengers and then seeing that first trailer for Fellowship. Mm -hmm. And then I was in for this entire ride. Uh, to, to understand the source material, you, you hear me say that a lot, but to be so respectful of it, uh, because it's the only way it can be done. To uh, anything else would be uh, to cheapen it. Um, the relationships that get richer and richer and richer all the way through this entire saga and culminate here. Uh, I yeah, I agree. Uh, there's nothing I th 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 yeah. It it's it's the kind of thing that stays with you. I will not argue with this. I will say I think either. Uh, the Two Towers or The Return of the King are probably would would probably vie for the number one uh, place on a list if I did it. But I, I will not argue with Return of the King at all. But I yeah. I, I can't. I, I mean, freaking Frodo goes to Mount Doom and and completes what we've been watching him do painstakingly 
for the last two movies. Not going to argue with Return of the King. Any final thoughts, Todd, on this list now that it's done? Well, I mean, it's this started back when you and I were five. We're almost the same age, you know, five and six. We have so many parallels. And they, they, like I said, they stay with you. You cannot get them out of you. I think if you listen or watch this show a lot, a lot more of this show makes sense to you. Yeah. After these past two That was hours. not the intention of these episodes. Nope. But. John 317. This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network.